Chapter twenty seven of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter twenty seven. The Inner Sanctuary. We made a sensation when we returned to the fold. Everybody wondered so much that they gave us no time to answer their questions, even if we would. But somehow it seemed to be taken for granted that the whole thing was my fault. Perhaps Mrs. East or Sir Marcus had spread the report. I let it pass. As for Sir Marcus, he stayed only long enough for a talk with me. It began with a trumped-up business, and ended in a confession. She had snubbed him, it seemed. Snubs being new to Sir Marcus, he had been dazed, and had forgotten, for a while, to send us a boat. I assured him that we bore no grudge, really none whatever. It had been an adventure. But I tried to cheer him up. Better luck next time. Why wouldn't he go on with us? Fenton and I could chum together, to give him cabin room. And Neil Sheridan, the American Egyptologist, had let me know that he was obliged to leave us at Wadi Halfa. There would be an empty cabin, going down again. But no, the boss refused his conductor's hospitality. I think the less she sees of me, the better she likes me he said, dismally. She was civil enough until I—but no matter. I suppose a man can't expect his luck to always hold. Don't split your infinitives till things get desperate, I begged. It hasn't come to that yet. If you must go back, I'll take it on my shoulders to watch your private interests a bit, as well as the rest. Look out for a telegram one of these fine days, saying, Come at once. You'll know what it means. I will, bless you, my boy, he said heartily, though I am hanged if I know what you mean by a split infinitive. I hope, if it's improper, I've never inadvertently done it before a lady. There seemed to be an atmosphere of suspense for everybody who mattered, as we steamed on between strange black mountainettes and tiger-golden sands toward Wadi Halfa. Anthony was in suspense about the way his fate might arrange itself at Khartoum. I was in suspense as to Biddy's decision, which nothing I was able to say could wheedle or browbeat out of her. He and I were both in suspense together, about the mountain of the Golden Pyramid. It would be ours now, we knew that. But what would be in it? Would it be full of treasure, or full of nothing but mountain, just as a crusty baked pudding is full of pudding? The doubt was harder to bear, now that Anthony was in love with a very rich girl, and desired something from the mountain more substantial than the adventure, which would have once have contented him. Harder to bear for me, too, wanting Biddy, and wanting to give her luxury as well as peace, such as she had never known in her life of tragedy and brave laughter. Monny was in suspense quite equal to Anthony's about Khartoum, and what could possibly happen there to give her happiness. Bridget was in suspense about the two men who had so strangely and secretly worked together with their spy, better, and whom she expected to meet again later. Rachel was in suspense about Bailey, although I had told her it was going to be all right, and he had said not a word of the business to her. What she wanted was to make sure of him, and there was the difficulty at present, since we had failed to arrange for a registry office or a clergyman on board. Other hearts were no doubt throbbing with the same emotions, but they were of comparatively small importance to me. Our feelings were all so different, and so much more intense than they had been, that the extraordinary difference in the scenery gave us a vague sense of satisfaction. We were in another world, now that we had heard the first cataract's roar and left it behind, a world utterly unlike any conceptions we had formed of Egypt. But we did not, for a long time, leave the influence of the barrage. 
black rocks ringed in a blue basin so lake-like that it was hard to realize it as the Nile. Now and then a yellow river of sand poured down to the sapphire sea, and where its bright waves were reflected, the water became liquid gold under a surface of blue glass. The sky was overcast, and, through a thick silver veil, the sun shone with a mystic light, as of a lamp burning in an alabaster globe, yet the flaming gold of the sand created an illusion of sunshine. It was as if the treasure of all lost mines of Nub had been flung out on the black rocks, and lay in a glittering carpet there. We passed small, submerged temples, with their foreheads just above water, drowning palm-groves whose plumes trailed sadly on the blue expanse, and deserted mud-villages where the high Nile looked in at open doors to say, This is for Egypt's good. Then there was the little temple of Dendur, whose patron goddess was prayed to spit if rain were needed, and so many other ruined temples that we lost count, though one was the largest in Nubia, until we came to Wadi Esabua, the Valley of the Lions. This we remembered, not because it was imposing, or because it had a dromos of noble-faced sphinxes, the only hawk-faced ones in Egypt, or because of its prehistoric writings on dark boulders, or because it had been used as a Christian church, but owing to the fact that the ladies bought rag-dolls from little Nubian girls, who wore their hair in a million greased braids. Here the influence of the dam faded out of sight. Forlorn trees and houses no longer crawled half out of water. Mountains crowded down to the shore, wild and dark and stately as Nubian warriors of ancient days. Then came Korosko, point of departure for the old caravan route, where kings of forgotten Egyptian dynasties sent for acacia wood, and Englishmen in the campaign of the cataracts fought and died, deserted now, with houses dead and decayed, their windows staring like the eye-sockets of skulls, and the black, tortured mountain-shapes behind, lurking in the background as hyenas lurk to prey. More temples and many sakias, no shadoofs here on the upper Nile, but few boats. The spacious times were past when loads of pink granite, honey-colored sandstone, fragrant woods, and spices from the land of Punt went floating down the stream. There were tombs as well as temples which we might have seen, savage gorges and mild green hills. There was the great grim fort of Kasser Ibrim, and at last there was Abu Simbel. Somehow I knew that things were bound to happen at Abu Simbel. I didn't know what they would be, but they hovered invisible at my birthside in the night, and whispered to warn me that I might expect them. A few people rose stealthily before dawn to prepare for Abu Simbel, because it had been hammered into their intellects by me that this rock temple was the great thing of the upper Nile. Also that every he, she, or it, who did not behold the place at sunrise, would be as mean a worm as one who had not read the Arabian Nights. Not everybody heeded the advice, though at bedtime most had resolved to do so. We had anchored for the night not far off, in order to have the mysterious light before sun-up, to go on again, and see the grand approach to the grandest temple of the old world. But after all, most of the cabin eyelids were still down when we arrived before dawn at our journey's end, and only a few intrepid ghosts flitted out on deck, elderly male ghosts in thick dressing-gowns, youthful ghosts of the same sex, fully clothed and decently groomed, because cloaked girl-ghosts with floating hair, if there were enough to float effectively, others made a virtue of having it put up, and middle-aged female ghosts, with transformations apparently hindside in front. No ghost's looks mattered much, however, for good or ill, 
since the slowly moving enchantress had swept aside a purple curtain of distance, and shown us such a stage setting as only nature's stupendous theatre can give. It was a stage still dimly, but most effectively revealed. Lights down, pale blue, lilac and cold green, a thrilling, almost sinister combination, no gold or rose switched on yet. Turned obliquely toward the river, facing slightly northward, four figures sat on thrones, super-giants, immobile, incredible against a background of rock, whence they had been released by forgotten sculptors, released to live while the world lasted. These seated kings gave the first shock of awed admiration, then lesser marvels detached themselves in detail from the shadows of the vast façade, the frieze, the cornice, the sun-god in his niche over the door of the great temple, the smaller temple of Hathor, divided from her huge brother by a cataract of sand, whose piled gold-dust already called the sun, as a magnet calls iron. The stage-lights were still down when the enchantress moored by the river-bank, within a comparatively short walk of the mountain, which Ramesses II had turned into a temple, as usual glorifying himself. But though the walk was comparatively short, on second thoughts elderly ghosts, chilled to the bone, funked it on empty stomachs. They made various excuses for putting off the excursion. The boat was to remain till late afternoon, until finally the sun-worshippers were reduced to a party of ten. Since Philae, Biddy had kept out of my way when she could do so without being actually rude, but as our small, shivering procession formed, she suddenly appeared at my side. Thus we two headed the band, save for a sleepy dragoman who knew the rather intricate paths, through scaly, dried mud, sand, and vegetation. "'I want to say something to you, Duffer,' she murmured, and the roughness of the way excused me for slipping her arm through mine. "'Not as much as I want to say something to you,' I retorted fervently. "'But this is serious,' she reproached me. "'So is—please listen. There isn't much time. I heard this only last night, or I'd have spoken before, and asked you what you thought. Do you happen to know whether Captain Fenton wrote a note to Monny, asking her to wait for him in the inner sanctuary of the temple, till after the people had gone, as he wanted to see her alone about something of great importance?' "'I don't know,' I said. "'Anthony hasn't mentioned Miss Gilder's name to me since Philae. "'As a matter of fact, he's been particularly taciturn. "'You haven't quarrelled, surely. "'Anthony and I—thank goodness, no, "'but I'm afraid he misunderstands and is a bit annoyed. "'Miss Gilder, of course, told him we'd overheard a certain conversation, "'and he's never given me a chance to explain. "'After Khartoum it will be all right, if not before, "'but meanwhile—I see—' Then let me tell you quickly what's happened. When we came back on board the boat, after climbing about the fort of Kasser Ibram, Monny found on the table in her cabin a note in French, typewritten on Enchantress Isis' paper. It had no beginning or signature, only an urgent request to grant the writer five minutes just after sunrise, in the sanctuary at Abu Simbel, as soon as everyone was out of the way. There's only one typewriter on board, isn't there? Yes, Kruger's. "'And nobody but you and he and Captain Fenton ever use it, I suppose. "'Nobody else, so far as I know. "'Captain Fenton didn't land with us to see the fort, "'but came up later, just as we were ready to go down. "'Well, for all these reasons, and the note being in French, "'Monny thinks it was written by Antun Effendi. "'It was only in chatting last night about the Sunrise Expedition "'that she mentioned finding the letter. "'I begged her to make certain it was from him before doing what it asked, because, you see, I'm still afraid of anything that seems queer or mysterious. But she laughed and said, What nonsense! 
Who else could have written it except Lord Ernest, unless you think Mr. Kruger's in a plot? And she refused to question Antoon, because if he'd wanted the thing to be talked over, he'd have spoken instead of writing. As for doing what he asked, she pretended not to have made up her mind. She said she'd see what mood she was in, after the others had finished with the sanctuary. Well, what I want is for you and me to stay in the place ourselves when the others have gone. With the greatest of pleasure on earth, said I. Don't be foolish. You aren't to torment me there. That depends on what you call tormenting. If I'm to be made a spoil-sport for Fenton and Miss Gilder, a kind of live scarecrow, I mean to get something out of it for myself. There was no time for more. We had arrived at the foot of the long flight of stone steps which lead up to the rocky plateau of the great temple. In the east, a golden fire below the horizon was sending up premonitory flames, and the procession must bestir itself or be too late. The whole object of arriving at this unearthly hour would be defeated, if, before the sun's forefinger touched the faces of the altar statues, we were not in the sanctuary. No time to study the features of the Colossi, or to search for the grave of Major Tidwell. These things must wait. The dark-faced guardian examined our tickets, and let us file through the rock-hewn doorway, whose iron grill he had just opened. As we passed into the cavernous hall of roughly carved osiride columns, the huge figures attached to them loomed vaguely out of purple gloom. There was an impression of sculptured rock walls, with splashes of color here and there, of columns in a chamber beyond, and still a third chamber, whence three rooms opened off, the side doorways mere blocks of ebony in the distance. But already the sun's first ray groped for its goal, like the wandering finger of a blind man. We had only time to hurry through the faintly lit middle doorway, and plaster ourselves round the rock walls of the sanctuary, when the golden digit touched the altar and found the four sculptured forms above, Harmarchus, Ramesses, Amun, and Ptah. Night lingered in the temple, a black brooding vulture. But suddenly the bird's dark breast was struck by a golden bullet, and from the wound a magic radiance grew. The effect, carefully calculated by priests and builders thousands of years ago, was as thrilling to-day as on the morning when the sun first poured gold upon the altar. The sightless faces of the statues were given eyes of an unearthly brilliance to stare into ours and search our souls. But with most of the party, to be thrilled for a minute was enough. As the sun's finger began to move, they found it time to move also. There was the whole temple to be seen, and then the walk back to the boat before dressing for breakfast. Soon Biddy and I had, or seemed to have, the sanctuary to ourselves. Even the sun's rays had left us, mounting higher and passing above the doorway of the inner shrine. The momentarily disturbed shadows folded round us again, with only a faint glimmer on the wall over the altar, to show that day was born. "'Did you notice that Monny wasn't with the others?' asked Bridget in a low voice. She lingered behind, I think, and never came near us. I wasn't sure till I watched the rest filing out of this room. Then I saw she wasn't among them. Neither was Captain Fenton. "'If they're together, it's all right,' I assured her. "'Yes, but are they? That affair of the typewritten note has worried me. You're very nervous, darling, but no wonder. You mustn't call me darling. Why not? It's no worse than Duffer. I like your calling me that. I wonder if we ought to go, as she never came— or to stay and wait. If we go, we shall be playing into Miss Gilder's hands. If we stay, we shall be playing into mine. Which do you prefer? 
"'Oh, I suppose we'd better stay, for fear of something. But you must be good.' Then abruptly I attacked her with a change of weapons. I had fenced lightly, knowing that Biddy liked a man who could laugh. But now I threw away my rapier and snatched a club. I told her I would stand no more of this. Did she want to spoil my life and break my heart? She was the one thing I needed. Now she would have to say whether she'd put me off because she didn't love me and never could, or because of that trash about not wanting to involve me in her troubles. No use prevaricating. I should know whether she lied or told the truth by the sound of her voice. But I might as well confess, before she began, that I'd rather be loved by her and refused, than not loved and refused. Women seemed to think the unselfish thing was to pretend not to care if a man had to be sent away, because in the end that made it easier for him. But in real life, with a real man, it was the other way around. "'I think you're right, Duffer,' Biddy said softly. "'That's why I wouldn't answer you for good and all, that night at Philae. I felt then it might be kinder to tell you I could never care. But I've thought of nothing else since, except a little about Monny, and I decided that if it were me I'd rather be loved, whatever happened. Men can't be so very different where their hearts are concerned. So I'm going to tell you I do love you. It was hard to give you to Monny. But I thought it would be for your happiness.' I nearly died of love for you when I was a little girl. I kept every tiniest thing you ever gave me. I was in love with your memory when you went up to Oxford. And it was then that Richard O'Brien came. He swept me off my feet, and made me think that my heart was caught in the rebound. When it was too late, I realized that it hadn't been caught at all, only hypnotized for a while. I've loved you always, Duffer dear. The thought of you is my one comfort, often, although I hardly expected to see you again, or maybe for that very reason. No, don't touch me. Please let me go on now, or I'll not tell you any more. I wonder if you never guessed what I had in that chamois skin bag you're so worried about. Why, I did guess, Biddy, right or wrong. And I bet you it was wrong. What did you think, when I wouldn't understand any of her hints to tell what I wore over my heart? I thought then, I answered after a moment's deliberation, that you kept compromising documents which might be of interest to the organization you and I have talked about. Now I think differently. I think you kept a lock of my childish hair, or my first tooth. You conceded, Duffer. Not so bad as that, because I never had a chance of getting either. Once I did keep in that bag just what you said, compromising documents that the organization would have given thousands of dollars to get. And my life wouldn't have stood in their way for a minute, I'm sure." but that was before Richard died. He was afraid—I mean, I thought it would be better and less suspicious if I had charge of the papers. And if the Society had ever got hold of him, he believed the letters and list of names I had might have bought back his safety, if I played my hand well. He'd told me just what to do. But when he was ill, he had a nurse whom I began to suspect as a spy. Once, when I was called into Richard's room suddenly, half-dressed, the chamois skin bag showed, as my wrapper fell open at the breast. I caught her looking at it with an eager look, and that very night I had it locked up in a bank. It was only a few days later that Richard died, and with him gone, I felt that there was no more need to keep papers which might cost the lives or liberty of men. Richard had wronged his friends, and I wanted none of them to come to harm through me, though they'd made me suffer with him. I burned every scrap of paper I had, every single one and it wasn't till there was an attempt to kidnap Esme that I asked myself if I'd been right. Still, even now, I am not sorry. I wouldn't hurt a hair of their heads. 
For a while the bag was empty, but coming away from America and feeling a bit lonesome, I thought it would do me good to look now and then at the only love letter you ever wrote me. It was on my ninth birthday, but I don't believe you could write a better one now. There was a photograph, too, of my lord when he was seventeen. I stole that, but it was all the dearer. At this very minute the letter and the picture are lying on my heart. So now you know whether I care for you or not, and you can understand why I wouldn't put the bag into a bank. Oh, Biddy, darling, I said, you've made me the happiest man in the world. Well, I'm glad, she snapped, twisting away from me, that it takes so little to make you happy. So little when I'm going to have you for my wife? But you're not. You said you'd rather be loved and refused. I would if I had to choose between the two. That's not the case with me, for I shall marry you now I know the truth, in spite of fifty or fifty thousand refusals, or any other little obstacles like that. Never, Duffer, not for all the world would I be your wife, loving you as I do, unless the organization would forget or forgive Esme and me. And that I can't fancy they'll ever do till the millennium. I shall be past the marrying age then. Oh, Duffer, I almost wish you had fallen in love with Monny, as I wanted you to do. Honest Injun, you really wanted that to happen? Well, I tried to want it for your sake, and in a way for my own, too. If I'd seen you caring for Monny, I should have found some medicine to cure my heartache. Oh, it would have been a very good thing all around, except for your friend, Anthony Fenton. And I was a half afraid he was in love with you. I can tell you I've had my trials, Biddy. It's my turn to be happy now, and yours, too. Just think, nearly everybody in the world is engaged, but us, or next door to being engaged. Miss Gilder and Anthony, who's the only man on earth to keep her in order, and Rachel Guest and Bailey, and Enid Biddle and Harry Snell, and even your stepdaughter, Esme O'Brien. Duffer, she's married. What, to young Halloran? How did they manage it? I don't know yet. I've had only a telegram. It came to Aswan too late, and Sir Marcus Lark brought it to the boat. I found it that night when we got back from Philae. But I haven't told, because I dared not be with you alone long enough to speak of private affairs, till I could decide whether to let you know I loved you, or make believe I didn't care a scrap. As if I could have believed your tongue, unless you had shut your eyes. So Esme is married, and off your hands? Not off my hands, I'm afraid. This may be visited on me. They must have known of her meeting Tom Halloran at St. Martin Vestibule last summer. They find out everything, sooner or later. Probably they thought I'd whisked her off to Egypt with me, helped by my young friend Miss Gilder, for whom they took Rachel Guest, in order to let her meet Tom Halloran again and marry him secretly. Well, she has married him secretly. When they discover what's happened, they're sure to put the blame on poor me. And, indeed, it is a shocking thing for the son of that man in prison, and the daughter of the man who sent him there, to be husband and wife. I don't see that at all, I argued. Why shouldn't their love end the feud? It can't, for strong as it may be, it won't release prisoners, or bring back to life those who are dead. Anyhow, don't borrow trouble, said I. If Esme's married, the more reason for us to follow her example. After Khartoum, when Miss Gilder— Who's taking my name in vain? inquired the owner of it, at the sanctuary door. Oh, then you have come, Monny, Bridget exclaimed. I—I'd given you up. I haven't come for the reason you thought, returned the girl promptly. I was sure you meant to head me off, and I've learned without asking that Antun Effendi didn't write that note. Who told you so? Who did? He's trying to find out. Probably it was a silly practical joke someone wanted to play on me. There are lots quite capable of it on board. 
Antoun Effendi said the sunrise was much finer, really, from on top of the great sand hill, so we climbed up. And it came out that he hadn't asked me to meet him here. If any one not on the boat wrote the letter, some steward must have been bribed to sell a bit of writing paper and allow a stranger to come on board while we were away at Kasser Ibram. There was a steam to Habia moored not far off, if you remember, with oriental decorations, so we fancied it must belong to an Egyptian or a Turk. It could easily have been hired at Aswan, Biddy exclaimed, and it could have beaten us. We've stopped at such heaps of temples where other boats only touch coming back. If there were a plot, as you were always imagining, the Dahabiyah would have to be near here, too, Monty laughed incredulously. And so it may be. We haven't seen round the corner of the great temple yet. One would think, to hear you talk, that you'd expected this poor little sanctuary to be stuffed with murderers, or, at the least, kidnappers. Ugh, don't speak of it, Biddy shuddered. Let's go out into the sunlight again, as quick as ever we can. End of chapter 27